you have a Bible, if you could open it up to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Uh, we're in chapter one today in our third uh, week of our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in verses 57 through 80 this morning. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand and um, some people will come by and, and give that to you. So there is, there is no shame in forgetting your Bible today. We, you, you, do need, you do need one though, so... Uh, just slip up your hand and someone will bring that to you. Again, Luke chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 57, going through verse 80 this morning in our third week of our Advent series. Before we dive in here, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. Join me. <clears throat> Our Father, this morning, uh, we want to come and just express our gratitude to you for bringing us into this place and for, yeah, just bringing us here. I mean, I, I know often there might be desires in our hearts to not want to be here, or I know, Lord, before I met you, I would never want to be here, and I know all of us could say the same thing, and so we just are so grateful for your grace in our lives to bring us to a point where we would desire to be here. And so, God, we ask this morning that as we sit here in this moment that you've made in your word, that is alive and active, God, we pray that we would experience it as alive and active and that you would use this story um, and this prophecy that we see from Zechariah as a way to, to warm our hearts um, for your son Jesus and um, to believe the things we need to believe and to unbelieve the things that we are believing that we shouldn't be. So God, would you speak to us? Um, would you just give us a heart that is postured to want to listen and to obey your will for our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, does anyone in here have problems? Do we have any problems? Me and one other, two other people. Wow, three. All right. Wow, okay. It'll be a different sermon for you guys then. All right. Um, I assume we all have problems, but um, I assume this next question will be just the same. Then anybody in here like asking for help? Nobody. I assume that one will get no hands. Uh, me either. I ask because this morning our passage is showing us that Christmas is precisely for those who have problems. But more important, it's for those who need help and they're actually wanting it. Uh, we often, I think, think of Christmas as it's all about family, you know, it's about gift giving or time off or traditions, which I love all those things. But if you sit in the narratives of the Christmas that we read in the Bible, you'll see a different emphasis. You see that Christmas is actually about problems. But it's not just about problems, it's about solutions. And to put it in the language of our passage, Christmas is about salvation. It's about salvation. And let's be just completely honest this morning, okay? Uh, salvation, it sounds really nice, doesn't it? I mean, when I said that, no one was up in arms, no one is probably checking out yet, you know, about what I'm going to say or something. But nonetheless, this is the point. If Christmas is about salvation, then Christmas is also about our need to be saved. It's about our need to be saved. And that's not always easy to embrace, you know. And to feel the joyful weight of Christmas, in order to experience salvation, you really have to know what your problem is. You have to know what you're being saved from, don't you? Um, I read this week a great quote from Christopher Ashe, who says, to feel the true light of Christmas, we need first to grasp the true problem. 
And so I, I just want to ask, do you know what your true problem is? Do you know what your true problem is? And I'm curious, how powerful or how powerless do you feel in, in actually changing it? Uh, the main thrust of our passage is, is honestly, it's clearly seen in this question that's in our narrative. And the question that everybody raises in verse 66 is, what will this child be? And in the prophecy that Zechariah answers with, he, he gives us the answer in verse 76, and he says, child, you will be. And it's actually in that question and in the answer that we see here today, um, these questions that I think we really need to be asking. Here's some of the, the outline if you want to know where we're headed this morning. We see a birth and we see a prophecy. And the question that I think is raised for us that I want us to consider in this first narrative section, honestly, is what are you laying up in your heart this month? What are you, what are you laying up in your heart? And then in this prophecy, I just want to ask the question, what do you think you need to be saved from? I'm asking what's your true problem? What do you think you need to be saved from? So let's read. Let's read this narrative here about this birth, if you will, starting in verse uh, 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, uh, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. The hand of the Lord is with him. So remember back at the beginning of this chapter, a couple weeks ago, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, we saw a priest, Zechariah, who was what? He was confronted by an angel just outside of the Holy of Holies as he's doing his priestly duties. And the angel announces to Zechariah that his wife, who was old in age, was going to get pregnant, was going to have a son, and he was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, that he was going to pave the way for the long-promised Messiah's arrival and ministry. So Zechariah didn't believe the angel, though, that he, this was actually going to happen, and we know this because of what the angel said to him in response. Look back in verse 20. What does it say? And behold... You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. Zechariah, if you will, has received a divine timeout. You know, he's getting benched for like nine months, isn't he? Right? He didn't believe that God was going to do what was being announced to him. It didn't matter that he was a godly religious man. He just couldn't get his mind around the announcement of what was happening. And so for nine months, he's been mute and deaf for at least nine months. And we know this because of verse 62, how they have to make signs to him about what's actually going on here. All this to say, guys, Zechariah has had some time to consider what God is up to and how that's involving his family. But notice here that we have a party that's taking place in verses 57 through 66. This is not just Elizabeth and Zechariah and a midwife or something that's hanging out. We have neighbors 
at this birth. We have family at this birth gathered for this thing. This would have been a lot more common in these days, nowadays. I don't know, do you really want your neighbors over when you're giving birth? I don't know about you. That doesn't sound like something I would want, okay? This is, but this was a big deal, and everybody knew about this, okay? I mean, Elizabeth was an old woman. She was gonna give birth. I wouldn't doubt myself. I don't think you should doubt yourself. This is a really significant idea, and so if this was culturally acceptable, you might as well be there too, you know? I mean, just think about it. Elizabeth, old woman, giving birth. If they had Lamaze classes, you're at a Lamaze class. There's a grandma in the corner, you know, getting ready to give birth. Like, this is astounding. Like, this is not normal. You would want to be at something like this, okay? And so your interest would probably be piqued. And then what happens? Well, a miracle does. She gives birth to a son. God shows her mercy. That's what it says in verse 58. And everyone experiences joy. They rejoice, don't they? Right, this is what's happening. They were excited. This would have been, um, you know, one of those news segments at the end of the evening news, you know, the last story that's always the positive, happy one. You know, all the other ones are hard to watch. But the, other, the last one is like, this is good news, right? This is extraordinary news. This would have been in that last news segment, right? So now comes time for the naming, which is actually, interestingly, where the conflict in our story even begins, There's no conflict to this point, but this is where the conflict arises. So eight days later, they're gathering for a circumcision party, and this conflict is arising. And Zechariah can't speak, and in a patriarchal society, the father would have had ultimate authority on the name of this child. But for modern readers like us, we just think, you know, what's the big deal? Like, why would there be conflict over this? You know, I mean, we we name our kids after whatever sounds good. You know, if you look at baby names list I saw like a year ago, some of the most popular baby names were Instagram filters. You know what I mean? So this is not a big deal to us, but to them, this was like a really, really big deal, right? So we don't, we don't get this kind of stuff. This doesn't, this doesn't feel like conflict to us, that's what I'm trying to say. But it's conflict to them for a reason. In this day, you named your kids after family members, right? Especially in a situation that Zechariah and Elizabeth are in because they only have one miracle son. What are you going to name him? Zechariah, right? Let's carry on the family name. Elizabeth says, no, his name is John, and everyone is confused, right? They were thinking, this isn't the normal way of the world. You're not passing on your legacy. The family sadly oversteps the contributions of Elizabeth to this dilemma, and they motion to Zechariah to see what this child will be named, and he gets a tablet, which it's hard for us to get our minds around, like an iPad or something, but in reality, this would have been a piece of wood with wax on it, and he gets the board out, but he doesn't write, you guys, he doesn't write, his name shall be John. He's not wishing something here. He's not promising something. He says his name is John. That's what it is. Like, it's, it's, it's not even his choice in the matter, really, which means what? We talked about this two weeks ago. It means God is, God's gracious. God is gracious. His name is John. That's what it is. Zechariah had come to a place in his life of trust and belief, and in that moment that God was on the move and that his word was and would be true and that anything was possible for God. He's aligned himself to the announcement that he received nine months ago. And then notice the progression here. Luke is actually a really detailed author. You'll notice that if you read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. There's details everywhere, and they're extraordinary. Don't miss them. What happens in verse 63? Everybody wonders. They wonder at the announcement of the name. 
His mouth then is loosed and open so that he can finally talk and hear again. Verse 64. But then what are his first words that he can now use? It's not to talk to his wife. It's not to apologize. Right? It's not to, to coo and call over his miracle baby. What does he do in verse 64? He blesses God. He blesses God. Then verse 65, what happens? Fear comes on everybody. What's happening? There's wonder, now there's fear. And then everyone begins to do what? In verse 65, they're gossiping about this everywhere. And so the people that are there for the party are just the beginning point of this story because now this is rippling out in a gossip-type way, which is good kind of gossip, all over the region. All over the region sorry. Those who heard the gossip didn't merely spread the gossip. They said what? They didn't just pass it along and move on with their life. What does it say they do? Laid them up in their hearts. What are they laying up in their hearts? They're saying, what will this child be? Verse 66. So the unraveling result is for people who aren't actually connected to the situation to begin to question, who is this child going to be? But is this really about the child? Is this really about, you know, a question asking, how great will this kid be? Is it about his greatness? Well, not really. And we know this because of the final sentence in the story. It says, for the hand of the Lord was with him. Here it is, the end result of this whole amazing story. The announcement of the child's name is given. There's wonder. Zechariah can speak. Fear. Gossip. Laying up in our hearts. What's this child going to be? What are they actually wondering? Well, they're recognizing that God is with this child. In other words, people are meditating on what God is up to in the world. They're not dreaming about John's greatness. They're wondering what God is doing. They're expectantly meditating on the gracious actions of God in the world. Do you see this? They're essentially asking, what is God doing? They see that God is up to something through this child. What is he up to? He's being gracious. That is his name. Notice that in the narrative here, this is the, the climax of the story. When he says his name is John, what was happening before this and the end result don't make sense until you have that statement uttered. That is where this whole thing hinges off of. When Zechariah names his son, he's not only following through in obedience to the name that this child was supposed to have, he's coming into alignment about who this child was going to be. He believes God is doing this in the world through this child. He doubted, now he's all in. Right? He doubted, he didn't trust what God was doing. He had boundaries on God, and God had torn those boundaries down, and now everyone is wondering at what God is going to do in the world. That's what's happening. I'm just curious, when you consider this sort of thing that's happening here, when you think of this month, especially, the season that we're in, or the season that you're even personally in, well, what are you laying up in your heart? What are you laying up in your heart what are you wondering at? What does your heart meditate on? Uh, if you ever hang out with kids long enough, especially if you're, they're your own, you'll marvel at the things they meditate on. At least I do. Uh, my two-year-old uh, seems to rule the world, at least our home. And uh, let's just say that her day consists of, you know, her watching some Daniel Tiger. You know, it's a good start eating the cereal she wants, 
out of the pink bowl that she demanded, that was dirty, that she demanded I hand wash so that she could eat out of a pink bowl, okay, because that's what she wanted. If she gets to dress up maybe eight different times in eight different dresses in a matter of an hour, she gets to have a treat, you know, this is a great day for a two-year-old, okay, mind you. And then just to top it off, we're talking about what a great weekend she's going to have, you know, Christmas is coming, presents are going to be given to you. You, we're going to go to Disneyland in a few months, you know. She's got a great future. She has a great reality, a great day. But then all in a moment's notice, if she asks for something, I say, hey, we're not going to have that right now. What do you think her mind goes to? Oh, it's all right. I think about all these great things I've had all morning. Oh, Christmas is coming, you know. Not at all. What does my child begin to meditate on? Right? What is she stewing over? It's what she doesn't have, right? This is what's if I'm being honest, I can marvel at her, and I do, but, but I'm not much different. I just, I'm more sophisticated probably in my pouting, right? I'm asking you is, do you meditate on what God hasn't done? Do you meditate on what God hasn't done? Is what you're laying up in your heart something he's not doing? Or do you meditate with hope on the gracious actions of God? See, Christmas is exactly the right time to let your mind wonder at what God is up to. Not because we don't know and we're just curious, but because we have a past series of events that bring definition to what God is actually up to. Right? Do you wonder this morning at how God has been and is going to be gracious to you? Do you wonder at that? Do you wonder at how God has been and is going to be gracious to East County? Do you marvel at how God has been gracious and is going to be gracious to our world? Is this what you lay up in your heart? What is Zechariah's response to all this? Well, he's filled with the Spirit, and he bursts into poetry, right? He sings. This is another musical of sorts. In fact, it's the second of four songs that people talk about in Luke's narrative. We'll look at the third song next week that the angels sing, and then the fourth song we'll see on Christmas Eve, which is the final song that Simeon sings. But in this prophecy of Zechariah, he isn't singing about what God has done as if God has already done it because he knows he is doing it. He's, he's singing about what God is going to do as if God's already done it because he believes he's doing it. So what, what does he sing about? This is the prophecy, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying, what? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his first or his public appearance to Israel. This song or his prophecy is divided up into two chunks. We, verse 68 through 75, we see what God is doing. 
God is going to do. Verses 76 through 79, we see who God is going to do this work through, right? His Zechariah's son, John. And he doesn't bury the lead here in revealing what God is up to in the world. He begins right out of the gate by saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Just consider what he's saying here in this, these packed couple verses. God has visited his people. This is amazing. If you're in crisis, and the person that you think can fix your crisis comes, that's the first step in salvation. And here again, we are confronted with this word visited, which is the uniqueness, honestly, of our faith in general. This is so unique to the rest of the world, because Christianity is unlike every other belief system, because every other belief system in the world will tell you how you can go and hopefully find God. You look here, you do this, and maybe you'll find God. Maybe you'll, you can search for him. But Christianity is the only unique uh, religion in the world or belief system in the world that tells you that God has come to find you, that God has come to find you. That's why we sing, veiled in flesh, the incarnate sea, hail the incarnate deity. Right, well, we're singing about this every Christmas, right? God has visited us, but God hasn't merely visited us that is amazing in and of itself, but he has visited and redeemed us, which is a word that means at a cost. He's redeemed you at a cost. That's what that word means. He didn't just visit and try to show you that he loved you. He didn't say some nice words to you. He came to redeem you at a cost. It's like if there was a, if there was a building that was burning and a firefighter ran into the building, no one was in there, so he ran out, the building crashed down, like, that would be nice, right? I mean, he's doing his job, he's looking in there, but there was no cost to him, essentially, right? He, he visited the building, though, and that was great. But the firefighter runs into the building and drags somebody out at the cost of his own life. Right? That's visiting and redeeming, isn't it? Right? That's what it's describing here. It's, it's visitation at a cost. And he's raised up a horn of salvation, which is not just a reference to, like, nose cartilage or something, Right? This, this horn was a symbol of strength. It means a mighty salvation. It alludes to having a strong Savior. And so Zechariah continues in verse 70 and 71 by reminding all of us that this visitation and this redeeming has been a long-promised plan of God. What we should imply from that, what we should understand is that, guys, God isn't just reacting to something that's happening right now. He's been planning this forever. He, he's, been, he's been moving in this direction, right? He's always ahead of everybody. Well, why is God doing this? We see this in verse 71. Why is he doing it? Well, it's to save us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. We'll get to that in just a minute. But then we notice here God's doing something. He's remembering his covenant, which most of us think, oh, maybe that means God is, this has slipped his mind and he's being reminded right now. And, and you know, he's, oh yeah, I forgot we had this covenant with you. That's not what remembering in the Bible actually means. It means that he had not forgotten it. It means that he is taking action to bring about what was already promised. Whenever you see God remembering something like this, that's what it's referring to, that he's taking action to what he's promised. And so God is acting because he said he would, and he promised mercy to his people. Well, what are you gonna be saved for? Well, it tells you that as well. Look at verse 74 to 75. What are you being saved for? So we might serve him without fear. So whatever we need to be saved from, is prohibiting us from serving God, at least in a fearless kind of way. Well, how do we serve him? Well, it's by doing what's right and living holy, set apart. That's what we're being told here. As in 
We're being set apart as an alternative community, an alternative way to live, and an alternative way to react and be proactive in this world, that we actually would resemble God to this world. And so God's people's holiness is showing the world that they belong to God. And God's people's righteousness, is what we see here in 74 and 75, displays that they live as God's people should because we are humbly and joyfully submitting to our God's wise ways. So we're being saved from something for something. And then we're told that we're going to do this all of our days. You're not, you're not saved in a vacuum. You're not just visited and redeemed by this strong Savior so you can just go to wherever you want. You're being saved for something that you're unable to do because of your enemies. Do you see this? He's covering a lot of ground, and we are too. It's not until verse 76 that we finally get to his boy, John. But he talks about his promise, and again, how his purpose is connected to God's purpose in the world. John, you guys, isn't the Messiah. That's what he's telling you. He's a prophet, and he's going to go before the Messiah to prepare the way for him to come and to do his work and ministry. So what's John's job? How is he going to prepare the way? What's he going to do? Your passage tells you. Verse 77. This is essentially what he's going to do. It's like the only thing said here of what he's going to do. He's going to give knowledge of salvation for his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's going to give knowledge of salvation. That salvation is, is here. It's possible. Your sin can be forgiven. So, so here's the question that I've been thinking about all week. And it's the question that I need to ask you again this morning. Do, do you know that you need to be saved? Like, do you really know that you need to be saved? Do you know that? Do you know what you need to be saved from? Do you know what you need to be saved from? If you don't know this, then you won't know that you need to be saved. And if you don't know that you need to be saved, then this whole passage this whole Christmas season, it'll just feel like a dry wasteland. There'll be a genuine sense of, this is nice, but there's not that joyful weight that a few of us have been talking about this morning. You see, like I, th I thought we were going to agree to earlier, which we all do, I know you do, we all have problems, right? But do you know your true problem? What do you think it is? Right? We're all telling ourselves a story, and it's, it's honestly, it's really the story of Scripture because the story of Scripture is the story of our reality. You're all telling yourself a story, and you're believing that there's something wrong. We have this grid that we can often think through. The story of the Bible goes there's creation. God made the world. There's a fall. There's sin. There's redemption, which is what we're getting at here today, but then there's a restoration or a consummation that we talk about that we're going to see at the end of all time. There's a, a hope that we're all moving towards. But what do you think your main problem is? We're all asking these questions, whether or not you actually think about these sorts of things, whether or not you articulate these sorts of things. You might not think out loud in these categories, but you're making statements that are communicating what you think these things are. 
right? There's a creation thing that you are believing, you're telling yourself. You're saying, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is who I'm meant to be. But then we see a fall. We see my problem. It's what we're talking about today. This is the thing that's preventing me from being me, right? The me that I'm supposed to be. But then we also have this redemption idea, this thing that we perceive as our solution. We think if I only had this thing, then everything would be better. And we're all looking towards something that we're hoping for in life, a hope. There's a a definition in life that you're looking at this morning that's something that's better, something you're hoping for. And we know in the Bible that, that we've been told that we were made in the image of God to enjoy God and to reflect that image. That's the story of actual reality. That, that's our main purpose, our main identity. But there's been this fall. There's been sin that's entered the world, right? And that image is marred. But there's a redemption that this passage is talking about. And there's going to be this final consummation when Jesus will return and he will make all things new. And we can all say, I, I know that, or maybe some of us don't, but we're all thinking these sorts of ways. Again, you might not think out loud in these categories, but you're making statements like, I'll be happy. I will be fulfilled. I will be accepted if I had this. You you think there's problems in your life. You perceive a problem in your life, and you're trying to find salvation by saying, well, if I get this, my problem will go away. I've got to get this thing in order to be saved. Everyone has some sense of what it is that would make them fulfilled or satisfied or accepted. So I'm asking, what do you perceive as your main problem? It it might be a very real problem, and this is not being minimized this morning, but is it your true problem? Is it your true problem? Because depending on your problem, you're going to think various things are your solution. Just some examples. Maybe you think my solution is going to be eating right and exercising. Right? If that's me, I'm like, well, I need to lose weight. I want to be healthier. So my solution is, that's my problem. I need to eat right and exercise. Right? Or a spouse is going to be my redemption. Or a better spouse is my redemption. Or a new job is going to be my solution. Or a new pursuit in life is my redemption. Or a new city or a new house or a new way to, to org. I need a new planner for 2020. That's better than my last one, you know? Or a good doctor's appointment with good test results, that's going to be my solution. Or a raise, that'll be my solution. Or a reconciled relationship. And let me just reiterate that these aren't minimized this morning. These are real problems that are at times, depending on the situation and motivation, are good to want to see changed. But is this where your problems end? Is this your true, deeply felt problem this morning? See, I think we often hear and proclaim, you need to be saved. But saved from what? What do you think you need to be saved from? Well, our song that Zechariah prophesies tells us God is coming to save us from our enemies. This is great. This is awesome. Who are your enemies? Israel would most quickly have thought of pagan empires that have come and wiped them out or ruled over them. They think of maybe Egypt or Babylon or Persia or Rome. Currently, they're ruled by Rome. And so when Zechariah is prophesying, do you think they were thinking of Rome? Is that their enemy? If it is, then that's not very relevant to me because Rome isn't my enemy. Rome's a place I want to visit, you know? See those Downton Abbey commercials with the cruise ships that go there? And I'm like, I want to go to Rome. It's not my enemy. 
You know what I'm talking about? They look awesome. Can you interpret enemy however you'd like? What I mean is, do you read this and think, Betty, you know, or Gerald at work, they're my enemy, or Patricia down the street, or Tony from high school, you know, like, those are my enemies, you know? God's going to redeem me from them. Now, you might have literal enemies in your life. You might feel like you have an enemy. You might even categorize them in political terms, but that's not what this is referring to. These aren't the enemies that God has in mind here. How do we know? Well, because we are told what we need to be saved from when we see that John, who has God's hand on him, is going to point us to salvation. He's going to give you knowledge of what you need to be saved from. And what is that? Your sin. That's my big problem. That I feel powerless to fix. I think it was Tolstoy who said, everyone thinks of changing humanity and no one thinks of changing himself. See, Zechariah says his son is the promised second Elijah figure that was talked about in Malachi 4. It's how the Old Testament ended. Remember Elijah in First and Second Kings? Remember those awesome stories about Elijah? You know, and raising the widow's son and hearing God in the mountain, you know, and doing all these other miraculous things like calling down fire from heaven to consume altars. Remember that, Elijah? What is this referring to? Well, what did Elijah do? Did Elijah save people? No. What did Elijah do? He went and told people, turn back to God. Turn to him. People were worshiping all these other gods. Their problem was their sin. And he's calling them to turn back. See, sin entered the world through temptation, didn't it? Through the serpent. And scripture tells me that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Well, that's an enemy. That's a big enemy. But in Genesis 3.15, we get this promise that an offspring from Eve will come and he will crush the head of the serpent once and for all, well, there's an enemy that we will be saved from, right? It's, it's the serpent, right? It's, it's, it's the devil, right? We're going to be saved. But why is he a problem? He's not my main problem. He's a problem because sin is too tempting to me, and I'm tempted by it, right? Well, we also see that because sin entered the world, death has entered the world, and no one has ever defeated death. Yet when Zechariah is prophesying, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that our final enemy is death. And why Isaiah prophesies that death will be swallowed up forever. We'll be saved from our greatest and final enemy, death. But is death really my big problem? It's not, is it? Because why is death a problem? Because sin is a reality in the world. And God brought about death so that sin would have an expiration date to it. So his good world wouldn't go on like this forever. See, Jesus even equates sin to a Pharaoh, right? When he says that whoever sins is a slave to sin, it's a really bad Pharaoh, isn't it? But if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed, aren't you? You guys, Christmas is announcing to you, or it's recalling to your mind maybe, that you need to be saved. Like you need to be saved, but you can't save yourself and no one else can save you, only God can save you. And we're being told that he has visited to redeem us as a strong savior. 
here's the thing, the crux of this whole prophecy, salvation is coming. And the main illustration that we're given of what this salvation feels like and is like is light dawning after a long dark. That's what it says, right? Because the tender mercy of our God, verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is the equation of what salvation feels like, right? Why would that feel good? Well, it's because light's coming to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And now this guides our feet into the way of peace. Do you see? There's a darkness in us that Jesus is coming to stomp out. He comes exactly to do that and then to stomp out darkness altogether. And if you're wanting the darkness to be rid of, then this is really good news for you. This is the kind of stuff that we would lay up in our hearts and just wonder at. Every time I think of light and darkness, I think of a story that my dad told me of what happened to him when he was in his early 20s. He was backpacking in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is like western Montana. And um, as he's backpacking, you know, things are going well. He's just there with another friend. And they decide, you know, to set up camp. And they do that. And they say, hey, let's leave camp and let's go hiking and, you know, uh, summit this rock face. We'll be back before night. They're like, oh, of course. So they don't bring anything with them, right? No water, nothing. And they get pretty far up on this hike, and they realize we really underestimated how quickly this hike was going to take. But there was no turning back. So they summit it. They get to the very top. They have a beautiful view of Montana. Like, it's gorgeous. But they're not thinking about how gorgeous the view is. All they're thinking about is, we're sleeping up here tonight. And I don't have a sleeping bag. I don't got food. I don't have water. I don't have a flashlight. I have nothing. You want to know what he felt like when the sun went down on that horizon as he was watching that horizon? He didn't think that was a beautiful sunset. He was thinking, oh man, this is going to be a long night. And during the middle of the night as he's sleeping, he says he could just feel something come up to him and start chewing on his shoe or his boot or whatever. I hope it was a boot, right? What would you, I don't know, what would you do in that situation, right? You can't see anything. You feel something gnawing on your boot. You're at a mountain, you got nothing, you can't even see what this thing is. He just shakes his, his boot as ferociously as he can, and the thing just luckily scurried off, but he said, I didn't sleep another wink the rest of the night, right? Just wondering, am I, am I going to live? You know, am I going to make it through this night, right? That is a long, dark night, isn't it? That would probably feel like days upon days of a night, wouldn't it? You, you want to know how he felt when the sun rose the next day? How would you feel if you could put yourself in that situation? I know you would have brought a flashlight, but whatever, you know. You would have been smarter and, you know, whatever. But let's just say you had. How would you have felt when the sun rose? You'd probably feel a little bit of joy. A little bit. Right? What I'm saying is if you feel like you're weary this morning and you're weary after a long night, and you're longing for the light. You don't care if you're exposed from what the light might expose you for because you know that in your exposure and that light actually coming, that your sin and your shame is gonna be dealt with by the hand of God who is tender in mercy. I think you'll feel like my dad did on the mountain in that morning. And if that's you, then Christmas is precisely for you. 
This salvation, you guys, is twofold. We're told some will be saved, those who are waiting for the sunrise, the salvation that's dawning in their life, and others will be judged. Those who love the darkness and don't see their true problem as a problem to be concerned about. These enemies are going to be conquered, and we're all told that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. The sun will dawn. And so we look ahead to the future, and we anticipate now the second advent when Jesus will return, and he will fully and finally save us for all the glorious reality that it will be. And there will be no more darkness. There will only be light. That is the promise we have. And he will finally put all of his enemies under his feet. This is really, Christmas is amazing, you guys. It's amazing. But it's amazing if you know that you need to be saved. And it's amazing if you know what you need to be saved from. And it's even more incredible if you see that Jesus has come and done that for you. But he redeemed you at a cost. See, Christmas is not just about problems. It's about our biggest problem. It's about our biggest enemy. It's our sin. But Christmas is also about solutions. It's about salvation. It's an announcement that salvation is dawning. Let's all rise to our feet as we go into our time of response. Father, this morning I do pray that we would look with fresh eyes upon this incredible story that you have come to save and that you've done that, Lord. We thank you for how you've kept your promises for every generation and that you've followed through on what you promised you would do. Lord, we thank you, um, God, just for your consistent, faithful, gracious work in our lives. And I pray that all of us in this room would really experience that this morning as we respond to you. How would you expose our hearts to see things the way we need to see them? And would you put forward Jesus in a way that we would treasure him above all else, knowing who he really is and what he's done for us? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.